So here we are. This is going to be the first episode of the New Romantics because, well, we like puns, don't we? We like like 80 music. And it's really a chat between a writer and a neuroscientist about what constitutes, well, an attempt to find common ground. Yeah, we've got the Venn diagram of writer (laughs) and neuroscientist. And I suppose broadly to think about what it is we do when we communicate, if we communicate. <laughs> so that'll take in a lot of things, in a lot of presuppositions of the kind of things we're interested in. Like, you know, is it possible for one mind to speak to another mind? Is it all a matter of very fine-grained mechanics, or is there something else going on? And when you, when I write, because I'm the, I, I'm the writer here, to whom do I imagine I am writing, or do I not? bother my pretty little head about that and if I don't why does that not matter to me and I'm interested in in try I, we tend to think of science as being a kind of uh, some incremental process of finding out about the world but it's not the only way of trying to understand the world and I've seen other people argue that when it gets to a certain point with human behavior in the human world science only gets you so far mm. And you need to start talking to other people who've been trying to find out about the human world and that writers and fiction are a very good place to start exploring those same questions. So I suppose I'm very interested in that interface of it does do we get to a point where science can't really help us or only science can ask, answer yeah. those questions? Or is there some stickiness in the interface with what we might think of as being something more the work of sort of fiction? And can we actually learn anything useful from exploring where those areas are either overlapping or abutting or there are yawning chasms? Immediately, you know, it makes me think about process which is something the whole sort of, you know, creative writing community is very keen on. I'm less keen on it because I immediately find myself (laughs) floundering when people ask me about my process. I don't really know. But that is to say there are habits that you can, as it were, inculcate and programme into one's behaviour. But I don't sort of think they're... This is where it differs from science, I think. I don't think they're intrinsic to what we might call the creative process. They're relative to your expectation of how helpful they might be. Like, Mm. I might spend X hours a week doing this, or I might plan my chapter thoroughly, or I might think I'm writing something that's going to be roughly, I don't know, 50,000 words or 2,000 words, and you know, a portion time and concentration accordingly. But how it's actually done, Mm. as it were, in the moment, is more mysterious and very, very difficult to... difficult to talk about. And when writers do talk about it, usually after the event, one always has the sneaking suspicion (laughs) that they're making it up. (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be humans, though. I suspect that's not writers. I think after the fact... It always seems so obvious that you would have come to that conclusion and mm. you would have done it that way. And you forget all the false starts and all the mistakes and all the wrong turnings you took 
that actually fed into the outcome as much as what you got right. And then you only really remember the, the rightness and the sort of, we impose a, a narrative of it all yeah. you know, marching relentlessly towards success. And then you feel like that's what you did. And so the, so the mistake is to think of, you know, a human version of an algorithm as being something that is just input and then a later stage output. It's yeah. kind of a bit more, it's more interesting than that. I think it is. I think it's interesting while it's happening. And it's interesting in terms of what we think happened afterwards, you know, how we kind of tell a story about what we did. And as soon as we start telling a story about the things we did, we're always the hero of the story and we always kind of get everything right. And, you know, it's a it's a narrative with a structure that is familiar to us and safe, but isn't really getting at what necessarily really went on. So there's an argument that says, like in the moment, a lot of what you experience as feeding into the decisions that you make is all really a description after the fact of what's gone on. And that the sort of your access to those processes is only really following them having happened. So consciousness is almost sort of telling you what what you've been up to, like a ride, a continual wave of you're on the other side of everything having been sorted yeah. out and happening. And then you make it feel like the conscious part of it made that happen, but it, it's possible that wasn't what was happening at all. And in retrospect all just collapses down into I was making narrative sense of it at the time and I make narrative sense of it in the past when I look back on it, but none of that necessarily, in terms of the story I'm telling, speaks to anything that went on in terms of why I did the things I did, how I solved no. that problem, how so I... So you're, you're, at, yeah, so you're, you're really, you're telling a story. The dynamism is between certain discrete things that might have happened, but how they actually now feed into your present circumstances. Mm. So the present is always kind of re positioning itself both in terms of you know actions and things you do and the moment of telling the story about those things exactly and and that seems to interface with what we largely are and are not conscious of so there's something called the conscious moment which is about 200 milliseconds long which is when we think things are happening and that's all of course it's all just happened Mm. but you're sort of describing it to yourself within that window as it moves forward through time and there's lots of stuff you don't really have access to in that I couldn't tell you or have any sense of how I'm sitting upright in this chair. But there's quite a lot of cognitive or you know, brain neural resource being put into stopping me from just sliding straight onto the floor. Yeah. Most of those are entirely unconscious, and that's why they can be hard to deal with if things go wrong. But they can be potentially conscious, though. I well, think. I think I think that's certainly one of the arguments. You can learn to get more access to that. So a lot of a lot of learning a skill can involve getting some access to things that you're not normally conscious of. So if you talk to people who do things with their body in sports, they will have a way of describing what's going on, or that sort of language and access to sort of sensory motor processes most people don't have any Mm. access to. And the same, in my limited experience, is true of voice actors. Voice actors and impressionists and singers have a whole kind of way of thinking about what their voice is doing that most people don't pay any attention to at all would struggle to do so. That is interesting. It makes me think of my way of characterising that in, in, well, not really just in my field, but just ordinarily, at a commonsensical level, say we're talking about specialisation there, Mm. and that, as it were, shining a relatively close beam light on a particular activity or aptitude. I mean, one of the problems, I think, is that that's, one can see how that is true 
in very particular circumstances, and one can see how it is true of people who are specialists mm. in a field. But I wonder how... It's quite difficult at the level of teaching a specialist, an apparently specialist skill like writing fiction or mm. writing poetry particularly, to make general comments about mm. it in the same way that it's difficult for me to infer a sort of general model of the mind from things that talk about, you know, chess programmes. Because I think, well, that only really describes a pretty discrete set of mental operations, mm. as far as I can see. And similarly, you know, when someone comes to you artistically and says they want to do this very, very specific thing, you're left thinking immediately, actually, but life is going to take you in a different direction. And you will find out that actually in doing that, it's very, very contingent. Mm. And really what you're doing is probably something else as well. The as well is what unites our fields, I think. There's always this contingent stuff around the discrete experiment that is sometimes quite hard to fit to the experiment or you have a nagging sense of it mm. being there. You gave me, before we started this, um, a really, really interesting bit of research by a guy called Alan Newell. And I'm guessing this comes from the 70s? It does, I think it's from 1973. And uh, it's called You Can't Play 20 Questions with Nature and Win, Projective Comments on the Papers of this Symposium. It's his summary comments after the end of a, a weekend conference in experimental psychology. He's had lots of different interesting papers. And basically the thrust of the paper, as I see it, is he's saying, well, they're all very interesting. And I think some really great work's been done in these very discrete areas. And he gives a whole list of what they are. And they are chess position perception, recency effect in free recall, lots of things that I don't understand. Um, lots of things that haven't really changed, actually. It's interesting. It's, <laughs> it's quite striking for a 45-year-old paper that a lot of that stuff is still largely being researched in, in similar ways. And his basic question is... I think these are all great, but it's quite hard to see how we fit them all together. Yes. Because there's this other thing that's insufficiently looked at, which is the general picture. Yes. What we might call, what he calls the control, and I'm calling contingency. In. I mean, it comes down to, well, it comes down to several points. I think the reason I gave that to you is it's probably one of the, I think, the more interesting papers I've ever come across in my discipline. He, it's unusual to read somebody saying, oh, God, look at what's going on here. What are we doing? Where are we going? How can this work? And then on the other side of 45 years to go, I think his criticism still stands. You know, <laughs> I think that's still an issue. But because you get caught up in an idea as a scientist and you think, well, that's interesting. And, I, and we've got this idea and I can apply it to that. It inevitably leads you into these very minimal kind of approaches or frequently leads you into these very sort of minimal things, which then become a thing of their own, and then that is what you do. And it's very hard to scale that up to a mind. Yeah. And I think that's what Newell was saying. You, This is all great, this is all good, but this will never, just accumulating stuff at this granularity, is never going to give us answer to a bigger question. And I think that remains an issue. And I sometimes wonder if that's just inevitable with approaching the complexity of human behaviour. You have to go into these smaller grained investigations to try and capture anything about what's going on or if it's something about the people who go into psychology because we as a discipline tend to be less interested in the big questions if you compare it to physics where mm. physicists are perfectly comfortable with theories of everything and in fact alan newell did go off from this and try to develop a theory of the mind based on artificial intelligence 
and it's unusual. Well, there's sort of two. There's two ways of doing that in in, in AI. Isn't there? there's 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 the strong AI version, which is essentially that it, it should all be determinable and determined, and all you need to do is build a sort of you know sophisticated enough computer, and you will mm. have a model of the mind. I mean, that's putting it very boldly, but that is really the premise. And the weak AI version is it's much more difficult than that, and actually you have to do this granular thing, and you have to think about causal relations yeah. and various shades of functionalism and behaviorism. And then there's sort of people, awkward bastards like me, who aren't anything to do with that, but who both see the fascination and the usefulness of that, but also have a kind of slightly more fundamental objection. <laughs> you know what's coming. <laughs> Which is that I think that those mechanistic descriptions are descriptions. Yes. I think they're descriptions. Yeah. And I'm not yet convinced, and you may yet convince me, I think you, you know... <laughs> well, it's not a question of conviction. I just think that they're, that they're sort of descriptions and they're metaphors, and I, and I wonder whether they... Alan Newell's problem about everything fitting together seems to me to be actually not very far from my position. He's saying that there's something lingering, there's a doubt lingering over it all, which is... Which is easy to avoid and and the doubt is are we actually identifying intrinsic features or are they just a way of describing coming at what we don't know mm. and can we can we get what really is the case about consciousness to match this observational language mm. and i think that is a you know that is a big problem One of the things that's been interesting about working with being able to sort of ask these questions of the brain has kind of given us a framework for some kind of constraints on what it is that we're addressing. But I think there is still something missing, and you find it, you find it, I think, most often in descriptions of theories of consciousness, but actually it applies across the board, which is are you just re describing tasks and phenomena which you ascribe to consciousness or yeah, unconscious yeah. processes, or are you actually capturing their? mechanistic processes in some way that you know to use your words it's somehow intrinsic and you're getting at the model underlying this yeah the the thing that is giving rise to this behavior and that is it is hard and it's it's easier in a way to sort of play around with a paradigm and find out the things that do or don't affect that paradigm yeah ask your 20 questions of nature but it is it is more difficult to try and work out what could be actually underlying that um, to give a concrete example, this, is, this speaks back to my PhD, one of the things that's interesting about human speech is that within any one language, you have th- that, that language will have a kind of a rhythm to it. And so English, for example, is described as a stress-timed language, so you have these kind of strong and weak beats, humpty dumpty, stuff on yeah. the wall, that, you know, to be absolutely... But all sentences have that, and the strong and the weak beats have a kind of rhythm to them. And if people say the speech rhythmically, you can kind of get a sense of where those beats are going to fall. You could speak in rhythm with somebody else. Until you try and look for what the rhythm is, and then it kind of goes away. So even in a very stress-timed language like English, you don't find equal gaps between the stress mm. syllables, for example. And then there are lots of other languages like French or um, Japanese where the rhythm system is different again. So French doesn't have stress. And French syllables frequently have more kind of even time in je monte kind of rhythm. There's still nothing rhythmic in it <laughs> compared to music. But you can kind of hear it, you know what it is. So what is it that we're hearing? 
what is it that we're picking up on? What is it that we do when we align our voices to each other to pick up on this? It's probably something to do with the actual mechanics that we use for making sound. That's probably what's relied, you know, that the rhythm is coming mm. from. But trying to reverse engineer back to what that could Very be hard. is yeah. incredibly hard. We're- I've been fiddling around with this for nearly 30 years. I have a new PhD student, which is why it's fresh in my mind and she's been trying to ask the same question. And I think, will we ever get there? Are we ever going to be able to reverse engineer back to this? And it's possible that we won't. And we're finding out some very interesting stuff along the way. We're finding out that breath is much more important than we thought it was and that that might be another constraint that's feeding into this that we haven't really looked at. But that's what we're trying to do with everything. We're finding these patterns. We're trying to see if we can reverse back to what the underlying mechanism is. And only really when you've got to those mechanisms do I think you're kind of starting to satisfy your point about what's intrinsic about this system, what's, yeah. what, are the pro- what are its properties, how could I describe those? And it may be the case, I think that's interesting, that's an old sort of, you know, this is a Greek problem really, that there's sort of two ways of looking at the world. There's, there's one, there are these, there may be our simple laws underlying all this complexity and that's what we're trying to find mm. and that's a sort of platonic think it is and then there's the sort of the idea that you do simple things but they have very very complex consequences mm. so you're just it's turning the, the pyramid in its head there you're saying not I've got all this complexity and there's something simple underneath it but you can do a simple thing and it gives rise to something very complex and the the, the sort of game of art I think often is you're, you're doing the latter you're you're setting simple things in train and you're seeing what kind of complexity comes out of it and how you can contain it and often in observational science you are sort of doing the reverse you've got complexity and you're trying to find what it is that gave rise to it said earlier about just the way art and science speak to each other and, and you know you learn something from other disciplines and other media I suppose the obvious question is does something like I mean I know you're you're a comedian you do lots of sort of stand up or 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 poetry or literature how does that help you do your processes your practice I, th- I think one of the things that I have learned from working with people like yourself, who are often interested in what, when the more I talk to writers and artists and you know theatre people, I realise you know the commonality of a lot of what we're interested in. It very often completely reframes what I thought I knew. So for years and years and years, I said I worked with speech. You know, here we've got people talking, and there is speech. They are speaking their languages, and there's some other stuff going on in the speech. Sometimes you can tell their emotion from their speech. So I started doing stuff on emotion, and. Then I was thinking, you know, there's this, there's this idea that maybe your identity is also there in your voice. And so I started looking at that. And then I worked at the opportunity to work, this was years ago, with an impressionist called Duncan Wisby. And he, I went into this thinking impressionists would be like kind of naturally occurring phoneticians. So phoneticians have these skills of being able to listen to you talk and say, oh, well, I can tell that your father's from Kidderminster and your mother's from Essex and you probably grew up near Blackburn, but your partner's from Norwich. You know, it's amazing all when they voice. can do that, isn't it? It's 
horrific how accurate they can be. And I thought impressionists would be like that. And, of course, the other thing that phoneticians can do is they can write down your speech and annotate it in such a way that another phonetician could read that back and adopt your accent. Mm. And not do an impression of you, but produce back the way that you said those words. So I thought impressionists must do something similar. And I, I could not have been more wrong in almost every single detail. So not only do they not break the speech down and then add it back up again, they're taking an even more kind of, more frequently kind of holistic view of the whole person. They are as likely to talk about how the person moves and what they do with their eyebrows as they are to do with what the voice sounds like. They, they use terms like where the effort is in the voice and all these things we never talk about in phonetics. And well, that, I think that's really interesting because in the first example of breaking something down and writing it down and then reconstituting is... That is absolutely a, a reductionist, then an interpretative act. That's what it is. Yeah. Whereas I think the impressionist, he's doing something very odd, actually. An impressionist is trying it's this mind thing. They're trying to get at what it's like to be the other person, Precisely. not just yeah. the the sort of baseline commonality of accent and so however yeah. you might want to describe it. They're trying to actually get at the mysterious part which is, you know, all the... I don't want to use a sort of jargony word, but all the qualia that go not with just, you know, how someone sounds and how it feels to... But, yeah, but how it feels to them to do that. Because that's what makes us laugh. I mean, when I I was first talking to Duncan about it, 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 on exactly what you say, one of the things in doing impressions is to be the first person to do someone. And it is more like a caricature than it is like they don't tend to do direct mimicry. They tend to put all the idiosyncrasies of somebody's voice in all at once so that it becomes recognisable and funny. But he, Duncan's first first person that he did, who was sort of people hadn't done before, was Paul McCartney. He was the first person to do Paul McCartney. And he'd started to try and get into Paul McCartney, he said, because he thought it would feel nice to speak that way. And I thought, how strange. What an odd way to describe That's it. That's really interesting. But it is exactly true. And I only... Oh, this is a really grim um, story, but I only really realised the truth of this a few years ago when a, a very, very dear, about my closest friend just dropped dead and you know, one minute's there, minute gone, you know. I found myself, and I still find myself now, talking like him in a way I didn't used to when he was alive. And I'm doing it quite deliberately to sort of keep him around, but also because it actually feels good. Mm. It feels like, a, you know, it was enjoyable when he did it, and it's not quite as much fun when I do it. But it's getting towards it. it. It's got that some of that sense of the person is ca- captured in that, and you are sort of by re-displaying it, you're kind of bringing a little bit of that them back into the room. And there is there is something genuinely enjoyable about certain, you know, just adopting somebody else's personality. Yeah. Mine for you know grim reasons, but actually. I think the impressionists are kind of opening up the constraints on this. We tend to think our voices are just something that we release out, and they're kind of that's how I always thought about voices. They were largely driven by your physiology and where you'd grown up. And what Duncan made me realise was that voices are aspirational and voices are affiliative, and you'll do all sorts of things with your voices because you're trying to present them to the world Mm. and you're trying to give people what you'd like people to hear in you. So it's actually, and actually, Anne Karp has written about this as well. I There's think they're musical. They, as well, they are. Actually. They are. They're it, musical. It, it is music. It's it the is first music. music. It's and the it's... first music because it's because it's so much to do, I think, with pitch. When you remember someone, uh, someone's voice, and it speaks in your ear in that way, you are, you know, you're, something in your mind is creating kind of very, very beautiful caricatural abstraction of what the person was like 
in order to embed that thing in your mind. And it's often to do with the pitch of their voice. And what disappears in that actually is the content of what they said. Yes. I mean, I was on, on the phone the other day, my, my, my dear friend Stevie, and we, we remember <laughs> we remember two things in particular from, from, from my past which really makes us laugh still. One was a contributor when I was working at the TLS who always used to be late with her copy, bless her, and she used to ring up on the day of having to <laughs> produce the copy, and she would just ring up and she'd go, I can't do it, Will. I can't do it. <laughs> Do it. I can't do it. I can't write the review, Will. And so, you know, every time you just talk her down. So now she's become, in retrospect, that phrase. Yes. That's all, that's all she is. Steve sometimes rings me up and says, Will, I can't do it. Whatever it might be. And the other one, similarly, was actually an ex of mine who chucked me. And uh, actually, fair enough you know, to be, it wasn't really going anywhere. And he, when we had that awful sort of conversation you have, he said, um, I don't know what I say, Will. I don't know what I say. I, I just don't know. And Stevie and I just now, we're alternating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in British Sign Language, if you are reporting the speech of a third person to indicate that it's them, so someone who's not in the conversation, you impersonate them. Mm. So you sign like them. It's interesting. And, of course, we do that. I was like, well, that's interesting, but actually we do that all the time yeah. when you're talking about someone who you both know. So sign like... So actually, yeah, there's, there's nuance. There's a lot of nuance, and it is yeah. possible to impersonate hand gestures. Yeah. In the same, just the same way as it's impossible yeah. as it's possible to impersonate the voice. So you're you're capturing the person in their actions when you capture their voice, mm. and it's in some way more obvious with sign. It's interesting. So it doesn't come just from the. In other words, the sign is not just the behaviour or the action. It is the. It's, very, it, it's the sort of background yeah. to the behaviour, which is partly the body, probably partly temperature, and partly all sorts of things that come off the body. And in the same way that you're, if we can write with a pen, we all have different handwriting. You know, it's that same mm. thing. You, you, we are all doing the same thing, and then we introduce these differences that come just from us. And some of that is, you know, we've grown up with different accents or different repertoires of speech. Part of it is simply what we are choosing to add in. It's a performance, I suppose. The whole thing's a performance. Yeah. Anything we do is some form of a performance, unless it's a completely involuntary behaviour. Well, this is what you're always trying to sort of... The circle you're trying to square, as it were, in in writing, mm-hmm. you know, in literature. You you want something that has has all the sort of personal nuance that you would expect with literary endeavour, creative endeavour coming from a person. But it also has to be amenable to many other people. So your nuanced deployment of language must still mm-hmm. appeal as a system that can be commonly interpreted at some level you know and and and, and where it where it isn't that's where people ascribe you know difficulty to it and say oh well, you're a very difficult writer or this is very modernist or I don't understand it yeah. I don't understand poems because they're you know they're in unfamiliar shapes and what are all these short lengths and little things happening that I don't feel I understand and what gets missed out there I think is that quite often it's the difficulties 
it's just a way of seeing it that's wrong because it, it, it's the difficulty, it's this nuance that's pleasurable. Actually, it's the nuance that is also common because we all have something distinct. Yeah. And those sharp edges, as it were, are actually also, as a feature, shared. I suppose, I mean, we're coming back... I mean, I, I'm going to keep coming back to voices and bodies, but it seems... So we've, we've got things in common when we talk, but the stuff that we're bringing in that's just us... Yeah. Which, are you saying that we, we share the fact that we do that? We yeah. A, yeah, yeah. And I think accent on the... Interestingly, accent on the page is something a bit like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I... I I don't know whether you you want to say a little bit about this so, poem that um, we looked at. I sent Will a really long paper <laughs> <laughs> on the birth of the use of artificial intelligence to understand human cognition, and he sent me a really lovely short poem, um, The Sheepdog, by U.A. Fanthorpe. And it's beautiful. It's not a poem that I know, and it's about uh, the, sort of the nativity from the point of view of a sheepdog. Yeah. And it's, would you like to read it? The Sheepdog. After the very bright light and the talking bird and the singing and the sky filled up with wings and then the silence, our lad says, we'd better go then. Stay, Shep, good dog, stay. So I stayed with sheep. After they'd come back, it sounded grand what they'd seen, camels and kings and such. We're presents, human sort, not the kind you eat. And a baby, presents was for him. Our lads took him a lamb. I had to stay behind with sheep. Pity they didn't take me along too. I'm good with lambs. And the baby might have liked a dog after all that myrrh and such. Charming, it's absolutely lovely. It's really charming. It's beautiful and I I love I mean, obviously, the voice is just perfect in terms of, like, that kind of flat, northern, don't want to get too excited about anything sort of stereotype, but also the point of view the dog would have on this, you know. Yeah. would quite like to play with the baby. And uh, well, a lovely idea also yeah. that it's a northern dog in yes. Judea. Yes, yes. You know, it... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the well, obviously, they probably came from Lancashire, I mean, this you is know. quite clear, you know. But I, th- that seems to me quite important because... Because one of the things that the poem is doing very slyly and beautifully is talking sort of about the dog's generosity and loneliness. Because it absolutely sympathises with the human's predicaments and what they've done and understands it. But given what we understand about dogs, we know full well that the shepherds aren't imagining anything like that on behalf of the dog. No. So she's sort of turning. (laughs) She's turning the nature of the world on its head and saying, actually, this animal consciousness has access to a kind of sympathetic Mm. um, understanding that that we have no idea about. But in order to get that across to us, she's doing it in regional dialect. (laughs) (laughs) I also like the fact that it has kind of got the structure of a joke. Yeah. You get a reveal, although I mean, this is one of the things, if you want to raise me to levels of uncontrollable irritation with my field, I, I get quite cross with scientific theories of humour because they always have one thing. This is the reason why yeah, things are funny. Yeah. And one of them is that you kind of have a, 
uncertainty and then a big reveal and you're made tense by the uncertainty and then the big reveal makes you laugh and of course there's lots of things that make you uncertain that are in no way amusing when they are revealed and here it's beautiful when it's revealed and it makes you then go back and read the whole thing again and see you know well how that was the talking bird you know and i I am i am very literal stupid scientist when it comes to poetry but that was i thought that was interesting it's very tender the angels are talking birds and it's it's beautiful it's one of her christmas poems so she used to write Ursula Fanthorpe used to write poems at Christmas for her friends and in the end they were collected in a little in a little publication. But I think she did this marvellous thing of just presenting lots of these sort of quite beautiful thought experiments about yeah. uh, animals and people and, you know, sort of dramatic monologues in ways in which you would never think, oh, it's a dramatic monologue, or yeah. you, just, you would simply go past all of that and fall into the scene which is you know what we all want as i think you you want people to well no it's not quite true you don't always want people just to sort of be immersed in the situation sometimes you want the situation to be you know arresting and itself the object of interest you know Mm. as i said the difficulty is sometimes is the interesting thing but she has this very beautiful like surface of a beautiful lake yeah Uh, the, the the work is sort of mirror-like in some way you look into it and see your better understanding, your better self. And it's quite humbling. Yeah. Work. That can only come, I think, from a particular grasp of tone, actually. Mm. Maybe that's something we can look at next time. Well, I would very much hope so. I mean, there's so many different places I would love to go to talking with you. If that doesn't make you completely cold with dread. <laughs> um, you will never leave my noisy office. <laughs> this is the worst tutorial I've ever been stuck in. But I, I mean, it's such a, there's so many different points to go off on. And I think, I mean, we haven't even started to think about why, why does this exist as a poem? Yeah. Why isn't this a short story? What is this? You know, why does it, why is that such a satisfying length and story and everything, the words, the tone, everything, just as you say, it's like a perfect sort of object hanging there in front of you. And I didn't, and it's almost agonising to think the world could be full of these things and you you haven't read them yet. But there's that and what that, from the emotion and the performance and the creation and what that's telling us about humans and their minds as much as any amount Mm. of science can tell us. Well, I think those two things you've identified there, the kind of scale, which goes back to the thing you were saying about the moment of consciousness, the conscious moment. Yeah. That has, that's something we can pick up. I think that would be very interesting to explore, and I think we probably can't try to do that now. I think we should allow ourselves time to... Let's, go and, have a, let's go and have a two-week cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and come back. And I'll try and find a more crappy short paper for you next time. The, the neuromantics are going to communicate and I think that it's going to be an interesting journey wherever we end up each time but for me it's always fascinating this is just such rubbish for me to say this but I can remember picking up a book by you completely randomly in a bookshop and that was a, I had no idea of anything other than the little who looked interesting and I was kind of running around within a couple of days pressing it on everybody saying, you've really just got to read this. And I never dreamt for a second I'd actually get a chance to talk to you about any of this. But I also never really imagined, and I think this is... It's a limitation and a strength of science that we tend to build very strong walls and think, oh, here we are within here doing the science and here the science is happening. But it really does help to free it out and let 
science take you to places where in fact I think you can have more interesting conversations than if you just stay talking to other scientists. Well I mean and similarly I, I feel that when I'm whenever I'm sort of writing which is in my head most of the time even if I you know I'm not very obviously at work on a, on a book I actually I read and I think usually at a tangent to what people would think of as my field which is literature in English or indeed in French and Russian I I tend to try and understand things that I that I'm not trained in where I have to go back to basics Mm. as it were the sort of the rudiments and the rules because I find that that is I think it's interesting and it also keeps you focused on the elements of things rather than always have to be kind of approached again. There's always new ways to understand the world Mm. from the bottom up. And it's quite easy if you have ambitions to write, you know, books or relatively large-scale things to want to have written them, you know, for the whole endeavour to become sort of... to get out of control and be too big and too too onerous and too... And actually doing... thinking about things scientifically is a good way of keeping it, that, that beam, shone on one chest square. Yeah. Making sure that you concentrate, that you don't disperse all your energy. There's a, a strong element of control, I think, in science, and not in the, just in the classic way of running an experiment, but actually it's a method for understanding the world which introduces these constraints which are actually very helpful sometimes. It's really useful to be kept narrow, kept, but yeah. also utterly focused in a way that might mean you miss all sorts of things well gang we're going to speak to you again so scale and other things like that and tone next time thank you sophie thanks thank you